Coming up, a special Sunday brunch podcast, being resilience next. This episode of the Bill Simmons podcast is presented by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Nissan. Get ready to level up your adventures with the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder built to navigate you to some of Earth's most awe-inspiring spots. With seven drive modes, with all the power you need, get the thrill of the drive in every moment of your journey with the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. We're also brought to you by the Ringer podcast network. If you didn't hear our reactions to last night's game, Brian Barrett off the Pike podcast, our Boston podcast. He was on it. Great podcast by him. We also had the Ringer NBA show, Justin Barrett, Big Waz, Rob Mahoney. Uh, they covered as well. Rasil and I are going to be talking about one of the great games of the 21st century for the NBA, at least, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Plus, we did some work on the CBA. Uh, because we we feel like this new CBA is going to be a bigger deal competitively than people realize. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the draft. It's all coming up. If you're waiting for succession stuff tonight, me and Sean Fennessy are going to be on the Prestige TV podcast. Basically, we're going to start taping right after the show ends because we did not get screeners. So it's going to end around 7.30 Pacific time. We'll go for like an hour. It'll take like another hour or so to get up. So it should be, I'm going to say like a little past midnight, maybe 1230 AM range. We'll have our reaction. Can't wait for that. Can't wait to do this podcast. Little hoops, a Celtics miracle, possibly in the works. Time to bring in our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, we're taping this 9 a.m. Sunday morning. Game six, Easter Conference Finals. So great, so memorable, so unbelievable, so important that we decided to just go early. We got succession much later tonight. Ryan Rosillo is here. Uh, is Derek White the new Dave Roberts Rosillo? Is that where we've landed? Do they have to They have to actually win the title for that to happen, right? Yeah, they have to win the title. They definitely have to win this series. But, you know, look, it just... Never had any doubt about this team. We knew that they were built different, <laughs> but they were tough. <laughs> it's every time I watch a Celtics playoff game and I think this is an amalgam of a hundred Celtic playoff games that were a heart attack, they figure out a better way. It's almost like AI. AI is now creating these Celtics playoff games. They basically, my friend Hench was texting me about it this morning. Last year in that in that game seven when Jimmy missed the three, the Heat outscored the Celtics. 11-0 from 335 to the 11 second mark and Jimmy missed. This year, they outscored the Celtics 15 to 4 from the 5 minute mark down. The Celtics missed nine straight shots 
down the stretch with Marcus being the last one and then White puts the put back in. But the White play, you know, I just on a personal note, I fucking love Derek White. I, I just think he's an awesome teammate. I think he's a really smart basketball player. I've been pushing for him all year to play more. I think he, uh, the hoops IQ stuff he does, I just think he's really fun to play with. And watching somebody inbound the ball, cut to the corner, of course, Marcus misses him because he's going to take a turnaround, two guys on him. And then White just just zooms to the basket and somehow gets that off in time. It's one of the great basket, one of the great high IQ basketball plays I can remember. I like how many guys would actually know how to do all those things in sequence in three seconds. It reminds me of a play we've talked about when uh, when DJ made the cut after Bird stole stole the ball at eighty seven, and everybody's just standing there in shock, and DJ's just kind of moving to the basket and makes that layup to make it. But uh, from a hoops IQ standpoint. I just thought it was brilliant and it saved the series. It saved the season. It might've saved, you know, Joe Missoula. It might've saved a Jalen Brown trade. There's all these other ramifications we could talk about, but really one of the great plays. I'm really happy for him because, you know, when they trade for him and there was a little extra on that one too, in the package that went out for him. And then he doesn't make a lot of shots. It's never impressive athletically. He's having you know, a kid, so he seems like kind of kind of rattled. Well, it's, I don't know if that's what it is. I mean, I think people have had kids, but I no. I mean, I, he, he moves. He's having a kid. He's on a new team. He's trying to fit in. It was just a hard sell to people that had never watched him with San Antonio. Okay, because that's how it works, right? Like we're discovering this now. How little people watch, going, man, man, this Jokic guy's like he's pretty good. Is he gonna, like is he new? Has <laughs> he always been so, a good passer? Has anyone ever won two MVPs and then made it to his first finals and had the group of NBA people be like, eh, I kind of get it now? Yeah, <laughs> like people who cover basketball for national networks, <laughs> sideline so, reporters. So not saying white, that's the end of my white Jokic comp, but it was like, wait, you know, you guys, you basketball guys thought this guy was good. And it's like, it's, it's never going to be, oh, he, he made every shot from three tonight, even though he hit so many threes in game six, um, because he and smart were the only ones that actually hit any, he had two that were, were monumental, you know, all these baskets that are kind of lost and all of the stuff that happens last night. But he's just a really, to your point, he's a smart player. He knows exactly what to do. The fact that Missoula has him inbounding in that situation tells you all you need to know about what the coaching staff thinks of him as a player. I do think there are plenty of guys that would have instinctively thought, okay, you know, just trail the play here, like, like figure it out. I don't, I don't know that it's entirely fair to smart that on that catch, he's supposed to be thinking about options off of it because it makes it that much harder to actually make the shot. And the shot almost went down. Yeah, I I watched Spo last night, who I thought was great. Want to get to that in the post game stuff. He said that they had done everything right. I know there's some controversy of you know the most dangerous man is the inbounder that we've heard since the beginning of our basketball youth. But Struess, his number one priority is to deny a nice catching lane there for Tatum. And he did the job. And then to ask him to then go well, and recover and wait, get hit that position. Because they, they doubled Tatum. Their whole point right. was like, Tatum's not beating us. That's it, right? The smart coaches it. do it. Yeah, like you'll see other games where you go, how did you give him an open look? And then you see what Spolster does. Again, this stuff may seem simple. It's kind of like the Belichick stuff when Brady was there. We were like, why don't more teams just do that? Um but you're right. Like Spo was saying specifically in the post game, it, you know, sometimes shit just happens. And for what we wanted to deny, what our priorities were, we we stopped the priorities. And I well, still the think- odds of White has to make that cut. He has to catch it and quick release it. 
and he still got it off with 0.1 seconds left. I mean, if I'm Miami, I'm not, I'm not saying, man, we should have done this different, that different. I don't want Tatum to have the shot. And always the ball finds Marcus Smart in the biggest moments of the game for better and worse. And it's just like, I had, I had a friend of mine texting in the third quarter. I was like, it feels like this game's going to come down to a Marcus shot. How many times has this happened over the course of his eight, nine years? The ball always finds him in the biggest spots. Um, I had Brian Barrett on the uh, Off the Pike pod was comparing the way this game kind of flowed and moved to the Malcolm Butler game, which I thought was really smart, where it seemed like the Celtics had it. There's this weird flip that you feel happen in real time. And in that Seattle Pats game, it was that, uh, you know, that long pass to, uh, to it wasn't Lockett. Who was it? It was like random, that random Seahawks receiver made that great play in traffic. And then they're on the one yard line. It's like, oh my God, are they about to lose this? And then Butler makes the play. That's how this game felt. Or even it was, it was 101.97 with a minute left. You can go backwards. They're up 98.88 with 4.56 left. They're up 100 to 91 with 3.02 left. And it just, it, as usual with these Miami games, it just becomes this tsunami where all of a sudden it's like, oh my God. We're up four, but I feel like we're going to lose. Jimmy all of a sudden got his legs briefly for two minutes. And uh, and it all led to that crazy sequence where Smart makes one of two. So they're up two instead of three with 17 seconds left. Spo decides not to call timeout. It's like, I'm riding with Jimmy. Jimmy just dribbles in, in the corner, which is usually the worst idea you can have, but somehow ropes Horford into this. I don't know, this this foul that became a three-shot foul that I don't think either of us feel like Horford fouled him on the shot. It seemed like he fouled him before. And I, I still don't know how that whole thing was interpreted because when Butler's shooting it, there's like between three and two seconds left. When Horford fouls him, there's three seconds left, but they call it on the shot. I, I, was, I was confused, Rosillo. Okay, I'll admit I'm, I'm confused now too. So if we go through it all, Butler gets Horford into the corner and there'd been a previous play where Butler just got right to the rim. Right. And then and where it was like, oh, they they ran this thing to the right side where everybody was kind of late and it ends up in a bad matchup for the Celtics because the Celtics are doing a really good job um keeping Brown away from from uh Jimmy when he had the foul trouble. At that point of the game it wouldn't have mattered anymore. Derek White was just better defensively. Like he held up much better defensively where it felt like automatically two points when he was getting white in a switch earlier in the series. I think they're despite Jimmy not likely having another night like that shooting, I think there's a comfort level a little bit more with him with the up fake stuff where you're just seeing yeah. guys stay home a little bit more, which is really important against him. But on that play specifically, he gets Horford and you know, there's an argument to me, like, why is Jalen Brown leaving the corner? Wouldn't you want to keep two there to follow Gabe Vincent along the baseline? But, you know, you're still a little worried. What if Butler makes a pass and it's an easy two? Then it gets into the two, three thing. All these things are happening so fast. So I don't know that that's fair. So I want to get that one out of the way. The Horford part, he reaches first before the ball is impacted at the top of the shot. So it looks like, honestly, there's more of a foul on the reach because I think there's a legitimate argument to is there a foul at the top or does the ball hit his arm and then his arm comes through? Which again, well, was and then be it also a foul. seemed like Butler might have double dribbled, but he kind of double dribbled because Horford hit him because he's dribbling and he just kind of loses it and then goes to pick it up and makes another basketball move. Which I, I that rule seems to go all over the place. But I thought I, Horford double, fouled him before he launched a shot. 
the double dribble doesn't really bother me because I'm not sure if it's legitimately a double dribble. Now, it looks like he catches it and then there's another movement, but I think it's a gather. Like I was yeah. looking at some of the stuff that people were talking about because then at first it was, oh, my God, what a terrible challenge. Oh, my God, what a great challenge. Oh, my God, they screwed up the clock. Oh, no, wait, it was a double dribble. So it was just this back and forth the whole time, which I think I'd end up by saying I'm not 100% sure that I'm married to any of this stuff other than this is not the first game that I've watched at the end where the refs go back and put time on, even if it felt like I can see the argument for that it should have been 2.7 or 2.8, but I'd ask like when we yeah. see the report, is the foul on Horford reaching? Because that might be your three seconds instead of the ball at the top. But again, like you, I don't. I wouldn't want to. Like, if I had to testify to this, I would take the fifth. I don't know. But the reason this is important is because those extra split seconds is right. what ends up having what <laughs> have the putback. So it's like I, I I just I didn't fully understand anything that was happening with that. But it turns out the Celtics get three seconds left. They win it. Um, it felt like this game was over a bunch of times, and. I don't know what happened to Tatum. I mean, there's so many weird things about this game. First of all, Butler's five, Butler finishes five for 21. Tatum was one for nine in the second half. Bam was four for 16. The Celtics were seven for 35 from three. And Miami was 14 for 30 for three. Somebody had a tweet today. It was the first time in 89 games that one team shot 45%, the other team shot under 25%, and the under 25% from three team won. So that made history. Uh, we had like 15 fouls in the first half and then 30 fouls in the second half. It just became a different game. It was like prison rules, first half, second half, touch fouls. Uh, both teams played seven guys. I thought I thought there was a lot of, you know, this happens in a playoff series. It goes longer and longer. And it's like, I don't trust that guy anymore. I don't think I trust him either. And you just kind of end up with like five or six guys. And then the Celts missed nine straight down the stretch and they win. And this is, now we're in the situation in game seven where either outcome is incredible, right? The Celtics win. This is the first time ever somebody would come back from 3-0. It's, it's only the fourth time this has ever happened where teams even forced the game seven. It's the first time anyone's forced the game seven being down 3-0 and then having the home game. So we have that. We also have the eight seed trying to beat the one seed. And then you talk about all the career stuff with this, like, you know, Jimmy Butler, we had this whole playoff Jimmy celebration. Like, he he sucked for 45 minutes that game. It looked like he had no legs. He's at home. He's talking a big game about they're not getting out of Miami alive, and then they then he sucks. Um, if they blow a 3-0 lead, the heat culture aspect of it, and just, oh, my God, well, that would never happen to Miami. So you have that. And then on the flip side, for Boston to claw all the way back to 3-3, have a home game seven, the crowd's going to be nuts. And then you lose. So it just feels like the stakes are unusually big for a game seven. Not that game seven conference finals, they're always big. But this one is like, it, it, there's like this extra weight because there's all this weird history shit going on. All right. I want to I wanna try to get through because there's so much good stuff in there. Um, but I, I want to ask you a question first. Yeah. Who do you think is going to win? So Joe House before the series bet on Miami to win game seven. Miami to win in seven in Boston, 11-1 odds. He was all excited about it. He's like, yeah, I think it's going to go seven. I think Miami's going to win game seven. Um, before the series, he thought Miami would win 
in seven. He thought Miami was going to win in seven. That was his bet. I thought that was interesting. Uh, I don't think home court advantage matters in this series. But to me, the Celtics, you know, when you think like they can win a game where they don't hit any threes at all and they can still win in Miami, I just think they have more talent. So for Miami to win this, I think they're going to have to have some sort of black swan event. It's going to have to be like the Duncan Robinson eight of 10 three-pointers. It's going to have to be the Gabe Vincent 29 points. It's going to have to be Caleb Barton going up another level. I don't think, you know, game sevens, they, we've talked about this a bunch of times. Game sevens, they're slower. They're rock fights. They, they, uh, they're super tense. They have a weird pace to them. They take forever. Nobody really plays that well. Um, if it's a close game or the other way it goes is, is the home team just blows out like what we had with the Celtics Bucks last year. The home team just does great. So those are two scenarios. If it's like one of those ugly, no pace, no flow, both teams playing bad, that favors Miami, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's what they do. They, they, they're dying to play that game. The re the reason I asked just, you know, I know we could have done that later is that, I would think in every other scenario, and maybe this is watching Boston too much for both of us yeah. and being closer to understanding them, you know, than, than almost every team in the league. If you were just to explain this scenario, I'd go, well, Miami's dead. Who loses game six at home on a buzzer beater being up 3-0? How do they go to Boston to go win that game? You know, there are very few times probably in, in watching sports where I am like, definitively like there is no chance the other team can do this there was a Tennessee Northwestern bowl game years ago where I remember on the air I go if Northwestern wins this game like I'm just done watching college football because there's no there's no way uh even 04 maybe it was being in Boston and going to Fenway so many times that year when they came back against the Yankees like the World Series was a wrap that's how it felt like it was a weird feeling for a team that still hadn't won a World Series in eight plus decades. Right. But everyone that was around it at that time was like, whatever. Like, yeah, we're a start, team of destiny now. Right. Just no start printing up us. the shirts. Because we've seen Boston, whether it was against Atlanta, stretches against Philly, you know, all the stuff we talked about a week ago and that zone that as soon as it happens, you're like, Boston just you, falls apart. Yeah, like, how can you guys not have figured this out? Although I still think there were better possessions. I watched the fourth quarter again this morning than I thought last night in real time. Because in yeah, real time... you had Al missed, like, a five-foot jump hook. Rob missed a little five-foot putback. Tatum got wide-open threes. I Every shot that Tatum missed a layup, I thought every shot was pretty good. They just missed them. The Tatum three was a really good look, and they doubled off of Jalen Brown, and that's how he ended up with that offensive rebound. And then Missoula, Missoula called timeout. The biggest thing is that they subbed out Rob against the zone at 325 and brought Al yeah. in because that part, no, th this is actually the part where you need Al to close because I imagine we're going to see this zone that extends up. Like Miami is trying to clog up everything you do in the beginning. Everybody's positioned really well. If you run a switch or a screen to get into a switch out that far, it doesn't really matter all that much. So Boston, well, they're extending that front part of the zone. It's like 35 feet out now. You're right. Yeah. You notice that? The two guys at the top, they're way out. And then Bam's coming up on the bottom. And it just seems like you should just put Rob next to the rim. And then Bam can't come up as far as he's coming up. But as you said, they brought in Al at the end. And then Al's in the corner and they don't care. They left him no, alone. No, they, 
they did, though, when Al first came in, they got him to that middle area that's wide open. Okay. And if Bam's going to come up and help off of that, which he has to at that point, then the corners are like that zone's going to look really bad if Boston actually just hits a decent percentage from three. And a couple, is, back, a couple of back cuts, a couple of lobs. Yeah. It's, it's, I watched the zone and I'm like, how have they not figured this out? It's like watching a, it's like watching a football defense where they just have like nine guys on the line. It's like, how can, why can't we just like throw over the top on these guys? I don't understand. What, well, am I, what am I missing? On the Horford miss jump hook, he bobbles the catch. Like they yeah. immediately, like they do what they're supposed to do. Like yeah. Missoula figures it out. Like, cause he goes, all right, you know, the Rob, Rob is not a catch. Although Rob is actually a better passer than, you know, we ever get to see. Cause there are, there are moments in his career where you're like, oh, he actually has a little passing this game. But in that spot to avoid elimination on the road, you know, that's kind of what Horford's built for. This big, yep. he makes really good reads, is good with the ball, um, even though he hasn't hit nearly enough shots in the series. But on the first time they do that, where they get him to the free throw line, that spot behind the zone, which is the way you're supposed to attack what they're doing, especially how far they're extending because there's so much room back there. Horford bobbles the first one. He had smart wide open in the right corner, and then he throws up a jump hook that doesn't work. And then they do it again. And they end up getting kind of a weird Tatum layup look where he could have settled for a mid-range. And I thought the looks, as bad as it was in the moment, because you're right, at 191, after the Tatum free throws, where he gets the call with the hand in the back, it didn't look like much of a foul. I thought it might have been actually on Butler. But whenever you see that hand in the back and the guy just leaps forward, yeah, they always it. Get that. you yeah. always get that call. So. It wasn't a great one if you're a Heat fan, but that happens. But the point is, is that from 191, that's a 12-2 run. And in the moment, it felt like, is Boston trying to run? Like, they start running the clock down too early in the games. Well, so that, but that's so, the big point. Th th this is why it felt like the karaoke game. Because it's like, we're doing it again. You're walking it up. The butt, you're crossing over midcourt at 17 seconds. You're starting the play at eight seconds. We, I've seen this. We can't do it this way. You got to push it up. They they need to play. Anytime they lose their pace, they suck. And that's one thing. The other thing is, I, for some reason, it, you know, smart, smart is, I, I don't know how many, he's we over a hundred playoff games watching smart at this point. So I, for better and worse, I feel like I've seen every piece of it. They're posting him up in this series. He's getting good shots over and over again. And then they just won't do it in the fourth quarter. Like when he's got Struess on him or Vincent, and they actually give him space, it feels like he can either create a six-footer or find like an open three-point shooter. They don't do that at all. It's just like, hey, Tatum, just dribble at the top of the key until there's eight seconds left. Then we'll set some pick and then we'll take some late shot at the end of the clock. I don't, what are they, it's almost like watching the four corners. I just don't get it. I don't understand how many times in a row can we watch them do it this way and not have success down the stretch of games before you kind of have to audible. It's ridiculous. Um, let's let's take a break, and I have a couple more big picture things to throw at you. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game, and they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? little doubleheader, little NBA doubleheader, right? First half of the first game. I don't know, West Coast time. That's usually about 
five o'clock, 5.30, perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. So I was in the house for the Ray Allen shot, which is the greatest basketball shot of all time. And will and will always be unless somebody can stave off losing the finals on a last second shot and then end up winning it. Butler's three free throws. And I don't think, I think they might've even mentioned it during the broadcast. But to me, it's like the TNT broadcast, I just thought was subpar. I thought the announcers weren't good. I thought they missed a shitload of stuff. Um, I thought they missed all the issues the Celtics were having with the threes from just a, just, how over and over again, the double screen was just fucking them up. How smart kept losing, you know, Robinson or whoever. And it's just, it was all like self-inflicted wounds on all those Miami threes. Just stand next to the fucking shooters. Anyway, they didn't mention that. But at the end, when Butler's in that corner with Horford, it was the same fucking corner as the Ray Allen shot, right? And he gets the three, and he makes the three free throws, which if they end up winning the game, those go down as you know, one of the greatest free throws sequences in the history of the league. Like somebody just going, I never, the guy never makes all three down the stretch. They always like missed the middle one, fucking buried him. Um, but then to have White happen, where that's one of the most improbable. And I want to talk to you about most shocking shots I've ever seen in my life. It really felt like the reverse of the Ray Allen shot. And the stakes were a little lower because it's not the finals and it's not a game seven. But just the, the absolute, oh my God, I can't believe that just happened. Very similar. Same crowd. Everyone dressed in white. You know, uh, Spo is out there. So it just, it felt like it had connective tissue. And for me as a Celtic fan, um, Bird steals the ball is always going to be number one for me. That's the craziest thing I've ever seen in person. Uh, I think White has, if the Celtics can make the finals, I think this White game has a chance to be number two for me. Henderson steals the ball in 1984 was the old number two, game two of the finals, where it seems like they're done. They're about to fall behind 0-2 to the Lakers. Worthy throws this lazy pass. Henderson picks it off, steals it. They get a basket. They tie it. Lakers choke at the end of regulation. The Celtics win an OT. But this Derek White, this the improbability of that play for me is like second that I can remember, at least for the Celtics. And then if you're talking this century, it's the Kawhi shot, which we watched together. It's the Ray Allen shot. Really not a lot of other... The Kyrie the three. The Kyrie three, but there was still like 50 I, seconds no, I left. Know. Right, okay, you're right. If, if we're going just straight up into the game, then that doesn't it's count. Not a, not a ton of choices. Then you go smaller stakes one, like Dame hit a series ending three and stuff like that, but um, not stuff that had the weight of this, where it's like Miami... I was trying to think like, as how many teams have come this close to making the finals, like this close, and then not made it? Like if they lose game seven, and you're like, we're up one with three seconds left, we're home, all we have to do is get a stop, we're going in the finals. Here, I, I have the, all these teams, the 65 Sixers, that was the Havlicek stole the ball. 71 Knicks, Bradley got blocked against Baltimore. Spurs 79, Dandridge hits a, hits a game winner with like eight seconds left, game seven. Detroit 1987, like Bird steals the ball, game five, game seven. Dantley and Vinnie Johnson hit their heads. Like that's, you left that series like, oh my God, I can't believe Detroit didn't make it. The 98 Pacers, how close they came against the, uh, the Bulls. 
02 Kings famously, like they have the overtime, they have shots to win the game that they missed. Christie and Peja. Uh, 06 Spurs, they're up three. Under 20 seconds left, Dirk gets the three-point play, sends it to overtime. OKC in 2016, where that game seems over and Clay just leaves his body and then Curry hits some big threes. And then ironically, Miami last year with the Butler three. So those are 10 times that a team thought they were going to the finals probably and then it got yanked from them. But I think this was the worst one. Well, could, just because you're, I mean, you're up, you've been up 3-0. You're like, okay, even if, and this is kind of back to the original point of like how I was dismissive of Miami because of what we saw from the regular season, you know, the first round against Milwaukee. And then, you know, going into the Boston series, I was like, okay, enough of this. Like, this is, this is over. Yeah, and from then, a talent standpoint, this is not sustainable. Right. And then Miami gets the first one. And Boston's turning the ball over like crazy. They're getting, the Derek White switches are bad. And then you're like, Pretty okay, sure. well, what, 16 teams have come back and won game two after losing game one at home. Then Boston loses again. And you're like, what? Okay. All right. So they're down 2-0. And at that point, I'm still like, I think Boston's a more talented team, which, you know, I wasn't going to change my mind after the series, no matter really what the outcome was, because it does happen. And then to see Boston be down in the second quarter and look like they've just tapped out. <laughs> and the third quarter was so gross in game three where they were actually getting wide open threes because at that point, Miami's like, all right, we're, you know, the effort is just not going to be the same when you're in control of the game. And Boston looks like they're getting looks, but they just want to get the clock running. And you're like, so now I'm supposed to put faith back into that team, which is kind of their story. And four, there's no pressure. Five, they're at home. And they have a lead. And it it's a great text from Hench because you're going, wait, they're going to like, you know how there's like four different it's defensive like rebounds. Bed. No, there's yeah. four different defensive rebounds the last few minutes of last night's game where I'm like, okay, this is over. And you're like, oh, it isn't. It isn't. Yeah, like, Caleb well, Martin's is- crashing in on foul shot rebounds for Miami and then setting up wide open Robinson threes, which, by the way, he missed. We didn't even mention he missed. He was red hot and then missed two of the biggest threes of the game that I'm sure he's like just almost he was too. It was like the he's too wide open threes. Yeah, Jalen Brown has some really interesting moments in games that are lost in the box score. Caleb Martin just gets in front of him off of that free throw. How you let that yeah. happen? Now, I can know everybody's tired and everything. But I guess Caleb Martin isn't tired. And when Jalen had his huge offensive rebound off the Tatum missed three, that's because they doubled Tatum. So Brown right. had a free run to go ahead and get it. Uh, on the Duncan missed three, not on the right side, but on the left side after a miss in transition where Bam pushes it, Jalen just freelances and decides to stay with Bam, who's not even close to him because Bam has the basketball. And Horford's pointing, no, 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 no. You got to get to right. Duncan. And it looks like actually a decent recovery, but for Duncan Robinson, any kind of space, any kind of daylight isn't really a contest. Jalen turns his head at the wrong times on defense. He has these moments, and you're right, like there's real confusion for Boston's defense against some of these really small area screens and switches for threes. Where Yeah, it's just they wait for a split second, they move three feet, and they're suddenly wide open. Wide open. And it's it's like, what did, what happened? Did you not? Like, guess wrong, but at least guess. <laughs> right. do, do something instead of just getting clogged up by the whole thing. So Jalen, despite 
you know, a couple, like they needed anything they could get. And it was almost all free throws from both teams, really Miami in the second half of the fourth quarter, and then Boston for the middle of the fourth quarter because it slowed down so much. So it feels like this series is still, I, I guess the point that I'm, I'm getting to here is that in every other scenario, I would write off Miami. I would write them off. I'd be like, you know, the whole reason why they were Boston was able to come back is that they actually are that much more talented than them. Okay. The whole point, the whole reason, the way I saw this series, those factors are baked into why we even have a game seven. Because you go back historically and look at all the other times where it kind of got close. Well, the reason why the team is home is because they're better. They were better all season. They're at home. This isn't this like weird, plucky team going, oh man, you know. Maybe we can figure out a way to to pull this off. And they've also reality- had leads. They've had big leads in the fourth quarter, past the halfway point of the fourth quarter, in four of the six games. Because game two, they're up nine with six minutes left. Right? They win four, five, and six. Um, but see, series- like, but but just to finish the thought, you know, I promise it'll be ten seconds. Like the fact that we're here instead of looking at it as, okay, Boston has them now. Miami has no chance. They have to be destroyed mentally. No, because it's even a game seven, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't, I don't know. Normally, I would think, okay, the other team is dead, and I don't so, but, feel that way. I don't know. I wholeheartedly agree with you. What's interesting, though, is the, the history of the NBA. Usually a loss like that is pretty catastrophic for the team the next day. You know, a good example is that Ray Allen shot. The game seven, which, you know, is actually a really good game and kind of got lost in the fabric of NBA history. The Spurs was so impressive how they came back and they were in that game. Duncan missed a little bunny with like 40 seconds left. And that was kind of, that was when you kind of realized, oh, Miami's going to win this. But that was about as well as I've seen somebody play coming out of that situation. The, The Pistons in 87, they won game six at home. Celtics kind of threw it away because they were so banged up. Um, but for the most part, it's usually like a haymaker loss like that transfers over. If I'm Miami, I'm more concerned. They're shooting 42.4% from three in this series. That's like, that's like pretty outrageous. They've been over 40% for the playoffs. Um. I think they were like 42% in the Milwaukee series. They dropped to like 31% against Milwaukee and they're back up to 42. Against the, the Knicks, right. Yeah. The uh, the Celtics, only 32% in the series from three. Brown is at 18%, right? Horford's at 25%. Um, Smart's under 40%. Tatum's 23% from three. So they're missing all these threes and they're still hanging around the series. The other thing is it felt like they were running out of guys last night, the Celtics, because it seemed like Rob got hurt at some point because Lowry just karate chopped him. Um, And then Grant just didn't have it. It was like, oh, he can't play. Like they can't keep him out there. He doesn't want to shoot. Well, the Grant drives, the Grant drives are really tough. It was, he was really bad, but, and then Brogdon's not there at all. So it just felt there was this moment where it's like, shit, are we are we gonna get like major Hauser minutes here? But in game seven, Grant has at least shown at home in playoff games that he'll show up. And if he makes a three, he can really feed off the crowd. So they'll get him back. The the thing that it's funny, like you mentioned, how is this Miami thing sustainable? 
it really comes down to Caleb Barton and Gabe Vincent just playing really well. That's been the difference. Like Gabe Vincent had zero points in the Bulls playing game. Caleb Barton is nine points a game for his career. In this series, he's 18 points a game. He's shooting almost 59% and he's 46% from three. And his defense has been excellent. Like if you just watch this series, you'd be like, are Caleb Martin and Jalen Brown considered to be on the same tier at small forward? You know, I, I don't know where this came from. He's 27. I actually was reading up on him last night because I couldn't sleep because I was so wired. Charlotte like waved him. Like they, they, they just kind of let him go. It's not like Charlotte was a good team, but they were like, hey, there was a story. I think Ira Winderman wrote it today. He's kind of out of the league, but he had this connection with uh, with Karam Butler, who convinced the Heat to sign him. But he thought he was like headed toward like Europe. So to see this guy the way he's playing, and then Vincent playing on a bad wheel, Strews like uh, people have talked about all these guys. I thought they're going to play High Smith last night, and they didn't because I thought they would have needed his offense. But for the most part, it feels like the 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 Heaters skiing above their skis a little bit, or they're flying above their skis a little bit. And the Celtics are underperforming offensively, is my take. I agree with you. I know the counter would be like, look at the two-point shooting for Miami last night. You're not going to get another Butler-Bam game like that. And that would all be right. But speaking of the Defense was shooting, really good on the in the paint, though, I felt like, by the Celtics. Yeah, the free runs, those, those things that we saw at the close of games one and two, where... It was like, do you guys not have any idea like what you want to do? How come you're letting Butler get so free? How come you're letting Butler like get an ISO while four other people are standing on the other side? Like, and there's never any kind of help. And you could see in the series like that was starting to change a little bit. So I think defensively, a lot of the stuff was was a lot better. The Horford block on Bam was incredible. Um, that's yeah. one of those plays that kind of gets lost left. in all of it. But the Celtics shot seven of thirty-five from three, twenty percent. It's the worst total of makes they've had all season long in a game. So, yeah, like every box score, you go through it and be like, well, that won't happen again, but that won't happen again, but that won't happen again. All these different things. Look, Miami, the reason why during the play-in and then heading into the playoffs, they were one of the worst shooting teams in the league. And Caleb Martin, who's been the story uh, really, it's hard to say he's been the bigger story than Butler because let's not forget the Butler games against Milwaukee where he looks superhuman and some of the stuff he did against Boston at the beginning of this. But he in this looks series, like, Caleb Barnes the story for the Miami, I think. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I'm not going to push back on that. Uh, but he, he looks like you're right. If you just started watching, you go like, oh, is that like a top 30 guy? That's <laughs> right. how he's playing. He made he making everything. 30 million a year. Right, because it was another one of those games last night where you're like, how come Boston's not up more? How come Boston? And the answer every time was Caleb Martin. This guy yeah. has been incredible. And on top of that, like you want to do some of the Jalen Caleb Martin comps. I mean, it seems ridiculous here, but I'll, t I'll tell you, between the two, the one guy that I trust that's going to be a little more locked in and not go like, what the fuck are you doing? Like Caleb Martin's the better bet for that. He has less yeah. of the plays where you're like, what, what's going on here? Where then you know again, Jalen hits some jumpers and I'm like, I can't even believe that went in because of his shot maker. Yeah, the the if you're just doing the blueprint of how the Celtics blow a game like this, smart smart and brown combined turnovers usually are eight or more. I think they were nine last night. The three-point shooting goes south. Well, it's never been worse all season than it was last night. Um, the they slow it down down the stretch. Well, that happened too. Uh but the way put back 
was the uh, was the great equalizer. There's some weird Celtic stuff here where they're now eight and one in elimination games the last two years. The record for winning elimination games in one year is six, which a couple teams have done, like the '95 Rockets, teams like that. If they win Game Seven, it will be their sixth elimination game win, which would tie the record in the history of the NBA. And we haven't even gotten to the finals yet. Um, but I was thinking about the uh, the Brown Smart era. So Brown Brown gets drafted in 2016. Do you think you're the only one today? What about the Brown Smart era? Yeah. Just like, no, I went through all the series. <laughs> First of all, these guys have won 13 playoff series, which seems like a high number, right? 13 yeah. playoff series since since to, the 2017 playoffs. They're 13 and seven in the playoffs. Um, they won a game seven against Washington. They won a game seven against Milwaukee in 2018. They lost game seven to Cleveland where LeBron played all 48 and just basically, you know, they lost to the second best player of all time. They won a game seven in the bubble against Toronto in 20. They won game six and game seven against Milwaukee in 22. This year, they won game six and game seven against Philly in twenty in uh, in round two. And then they've won game four, game five, game six against Miami. So a lot of like back to the wall <laughs> coming through games. Didn't, doesn't feel like it as it's happening. And I don't know why this team's such a heart attack, but that's a lot of success. Their, their playoff record, 58 and 47. Here's a stat for you, Russell. This is why I get the big bucks. Um, most playoff games by a guy 26 or under ever. Tony Parker, 122. Kobe Bryant, 119. Jalen Brown, 104. Magic Johnson, 102. Those are the only 26 and under guys who have played 100 playoff games. Like Jalen's, the fucking reps that he's getting you know, and if they decide they have to trade him, and we're going to do a whole thing about the CBA in the second part of the podcast, but if you're like, hey, we want to like trade all of our future stuff for this guy who's an experienced vet, who's really good, a top 30 guy, who's been in some wars, who's been in more wars than Jalen Brown? He's been 104 playoff games. This is his 21st playoff series. He's 26. Asia? <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> Uh, boy, you think he'd hang on to the basketball a little bit better after a hundred of these things, but the dri- um, you think the dribbling would be, yeah. but you know, he had a huge four point play last night. He huge. made some big shots in the beginning. Um, he does, no, he, he doesn't seem he afraid couple, and then he'll no. have a brain fart out of nowhere. And it's just, that's the package at this point, right? Yeah. That's the package. Cause I mean, he comes out, he's on fire and you just always want him to be the second scorer, right? Like whenever I look at playoff teams, I go, how many guys do they have that can find a way to create a shot on their own? And that's why- Or get to the basket. Right. Like Boston being around these last few years, it's it's not a fluky thing. It's that they have two really dynamic wing scorers. It just happens yeah. to be that one guy, for whatever reason, can't dribble after two dribbles. So- and I'll look at the box scores too, and I feel like the official scoring is like really nice to him on turnovers. Yeah, well, he had five last night because I screenshotted it. And now it's four. Now it's four, right? I've had he games definitely where- had five. There's no question he had five last night. <laughs> I'll have games where I have like seven down because <laughs> I'll, I'll always look for it. Yeah, so I'll be like, how is this? Because then he'll have a dribble into traffic where I'm like, what is he doing? And then his legs spread a bit, 
and then he just drains it from 17 feet. And you go, okay, this is the reason why he's all NBA. This is the reason why he's going to make all this money. And this is why he's actually, um, I would think, profiles to be better than Caleb Martin the rest of his career. The surprise yeah. in this has been in my tracking of like, all right, how many dudes do you have if something goes wrong that can find a way to get you a bucket? Because everything, all of your first, your second, all your counters, they're all gone at this point. It's just drive and find a way to get a shot off and make it. And he's he's one of the rare guys that can really do that. And then yeah. Miami found another one in this series in Caleb Martin. I was thinking that turnovers should almost be you know, we have so many good stats now, certainly more than you and I ever thought we would have had 15 years ago. I even remember writing a column about it, about the Sloan Conference and how there are all these numbers. I wish we had them, right? I know the teams have them. I wish we had access. Now we have access to them. It feels like turnovers, there should be like unforced error turnovers like in tennis because Smart and Brown it's they're not just turnovers. They're like Brown, like uh, in the game five, like where he just throws the one armed al alley oop pass to Robert Williams that hits the shot clock, and you're like, wow, what was that? They are they trying to get Williams? Are they trying to get him killed between yeah, he and Smart? Try, trying to blow out his ACL. Uh, they have more what is that turnovers those two guys than anyone I've ever seen. I was texting um with somebody about it, saying like if Jalen Brown was a tennis player he would be the guy that he's up 40 love in the set and double faults. And all of a sudden it's at, it's add in. You're like, wait, you're just up 40 love. And the other guy didn't even hit a shot. Why did you let that guy back in the game? Um, but it's just part of the package. And, you know, it sounds like we're always complaining, not you and I, but just like all the Celtic fans are complaining about this team. It's just, we've seen, we've seen over a hundred playoff games with this nucleus and you stay, it's like a marriage. You start like, oh my God, my wife's so fucking annoying. I can't believe she did that. Oh my, uh, oh great. She had three glasses of rosé with the girl. She's going to come <laughs> home and start yelling at me that I left the TV on. You're just, it's, it's the <laughs> ebb and flow of a marriage. And that's what it is with these guys, which doesn't exist in the NBA anymore. It's like the Warriors have this and the Celtics have this. These guys that have been together for long periods of time and you watch a series like this and you think like, yeah, this is why you don't trade Jalen Brown. It's cool. Like they had that video at the end of the game last night. They had like the Celtics.com. They had Missoula gave his little speech and then they're all celebrating in the locker room. And Jalen and, and Tatum were just like hugging. And then they were looking at each other and they put their foreheads on each other. Like it was the fucking end of Rain Man with Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise. Like they just like, like forehead touches. Like there's like real love with those guys now. They've been in a lot of battles. So if you're thinking this summer and we're going to talk about the CBA later in the pod, can you pay these two guys 120 million? It's like, that's why. Because there's real DNA with those guys now. There's a real partnership, as frustrating as they are sometimes. Um, when we were talking a week ago, and I didn't think they were going to come back. But what why I would you? What, no. what, what signs were there that they were going to come back? No, but that's why they were so confusing. And that's why they continue to be so confusing. Is how can a team almost blow last night. How can they look like they quit in game three, which I they thought did they quit. did quit. They quit right? in game three. Blow game two after you just blew game one and you're supposed to be the better team. You were just in the finals last year. So this is not some team that was put together. It's like, hey, you know who's having a great season? This team, they won 57 games, you know, yeah. but do we have, like I have a hard time in basketball with any team 
that hasn't been around for a little bit. You know, a success out of nowhere usually doesn't happen in this league. So I'll admit, sometimes being stubborn, I can miss on something. But when we were talking about the Celtics a week ago, I go, you know, the weird thing is, is that here they've quit. They've blown those two at home. And yet we have real evidence of them fighting. It's it's the strangest combination of a personality the team could have. It's like, don't count them out. Except, but the don't trust them. <laughs> right, right. Perfect. <laughs> Perfectly said. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was weird to hear their confidence in game four after game four. It's like, well, we stuck together. We knew. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm glad you guys knew. <laughs> I thought, I, I've never seen a team roll over in the third game down to nothing and then show signs of life. I don't really fully understand it, but. NBA history says usually when you roll over in the game three, then the sweep comes in game four. And then, you know, it's the one, two, three Cancun. Grandy said one, two, three Cancun, four, five, six Celtics. Pretty good line. We're going to take a break. That is uh, a good line. I want to talk a little Miami. And then we got to, uh, Rasilla and I have done a lot of work on the CBA. And I have even some thoughts I haven't shared with you yet. So that's next. All right, so the 3-0 teams that forced a game seven. 1951 Knicks against Rochester. They lost. Bob Ryan was tweeting about it. I don't have a lot of thoughts on that series. 94 Denver against Utah. I vaguely remember this. Um, more from a Malone Stockton that, you know, their Q rating as playoff team was so down at this at that point that it actually seemed realistic that they were going to blow a 3 nothing lead to Denver. And then, uh, and then they won game seven. And then 03 Portland against Dallas. The Mavs, uh, the, the Nash, Nowitzki, Mavs. I got to be honest, I don't really remember much about that series. So now we're in that situation yet again. Um, craziest Celtics wins. I'm a little older than you. Uh, what do you have for your lifetime? Bird steals the ball. Derek White game. Henderson. <laughs> Celts Nets 2002. Celts Nets. Celts Nets 2002 was awesome for me because I remember I just quit the Trenton Thunder midseason. It was a fucking disaster. And I drove straight to Boston from Trenton and it took forever. And I went right to the harp. And my buddy was bartending. And then he ran my card at the end of the night, got declined. Mm. And then I crashed on his couch for like three days. And that comeback was like the next day. This is why you and nephew Kyle get along so well. Well, we would have in our 20s. That that whole story definitely happened to Kyle. Um, Celts Nets game three. The Celts hadn't had a fun kind of playoff moment really since like the Reggie Lewis era. There was that time when... um. They were trying to protect the garden against the Magic. Remember, they beat the Magic, and it was like, oh, my God, they might beat Shaq and Penny, and then Shaq and Penny uh, in those last two garden games uh, sent the garden basically to be demolished. How how bad, how mad were you when Shaq said, I I shut down the Boston Garden? I didn't like it. I know. It took a while to bounce back for that one for me. But, yeah, so it was a seven-year drought, and then including the Duncan lottery, and then that game happened. So that was a good one. There's a sneaky one that I think got lost where 
because they lost the series, but in 88, after the Bird Magic, a uh, Bird Dominique duel against Atlanta, the next, next series, they're playing the Pistons in the Eastern Conference Finals. And I think they lose game one. And in game two, um, Mikhail hits a three in the first overtime to save them. And they would have gone down 0-2. And he hits a three, it goes into double overtime and they win. And it was one of, this is like where we talk about the Derek White game. Nobody remembers that now because they lost the series. It kind of doesn't matter, which, you know, with this Derek White, this Derek White shot's amazing. But if they lose game seven, it'll just vanish into thin air. Nobody will care. They'll care, <laughs> right. but not yeah. really. You know what I mean? No, nobody's going to remember outside of the fan bases, these two teams. But if the Celtics come back and win and they make the finals, now nah, it's a little different. Here's, here's the thing. And this is the most important point that I'm going to make in this entire playoffs or this entire podcast. The Celtics do win this game. And there's a bunch of 0-4 Red Sox parallels. And I'm sure there's going to be some 0-4 Red Sox at the game tomorrow night. I fully expect it. The 0-4 Cardinals are not waiting for them. This Nuggets team is the best team I've seen in person in five years since the 2018 Warriors. They're really good. And to for the Celtics, they would have played... Let's say they win tomorrow. 20 playoff games. You're scrapping and clawing. Every series is tougher than the last one. And now you got fucking Jokic waiting for you three days later. And also the NBA is in a pretty unprecedented spot because they have no idea where the finals is going to be. And the finals is now four days away. Because if Miami wins, we start in Denver. If Boston wins, we're, we stay in Boston and it's Thursday, Sunday, Boston. Um, but... The, the bigger point is that I think, I just think Denver's better than both of these teams, which would put the Celtics in, even if they made the finals, but they couldn't get by Denver in the pretty strange situation of making the finals two years in a row, but losing to two different teams, which I think the last time that happened was the Nets with Jake Kidd. You think this Denver team, did you watch Milwaukee live a couple years ago? Yeah, Denver's... This Denver team is the best team I've seen in five years. It's mostly because of how great Jokic is, but how they play off each other and, and how they just always get a good shot, no matter what the scenario is. All three refs can be against them. The crowd can be super loud. It just doesn't fucking matter. They're getting a good shot. They look that good against LA. Um, Those LA wins were... It, I, I think that the Laker fans now are like, oh man, what do we need? And it's like, you guys were... That was a good playoff team, the Lakers. They really were. I, I just think they ran into a team that was not just better, but really probably beats anybody the last four years. They definitely beat any of the 2019 teams. I think they would have beaten the, any of the bubble teams. And just going down the line, I, I just think it's a really, really, really good team. Wait, so you think they beat the injured Warriors of 2019? Yeah, or the healthy? I think they win. I think they win either of those. They, you think I they, think they beat, beat the Toronto healthy Warriors? Too. No. I'm saying the the injured Warriors. Okay, all right. Nobody um, was beating those Durant Curry Warriors. That's a, that's a generational fluke. Yeah, I agree on that one. All right, let me. I'd pick Denver too. It doesn't matter, you know, who wins Game Seven. Uh, I had CJ McCollum on on Thursday, and I thought he kind of like retroactively went back and made a point of, and I, I thought it was a good one because I don't know that it dawned on me at the time because Phoenix looked like they were kind of messed up. But he goes, you know, considering what Booker and Durant had to do and the way they had to do it. And that people were just like, oh, Denver beat them. Like, that was a good win. 
That was an insanely good playoff series win to still win in six and at two times look absolutely dominant against a team that's got two top eight, two top seven, eight guys. And as much as Phoenix roster needs some kind of smoothing here to figure out what they're going to be, and we're going to get that a little bit later, like that that series win in the second round, it felt like it was more dismissive after the result than maybe it should have been. And they then weren't it's even so favored dumb. in the series. The Suns were favored. Yeah, and you so think like it's a good the point. Suns played two of the best offensive games that probably in the history of the playoffs, and they still lost in six. Denver's lost three games, two those crazy Booker Durant games, and then game four. Who was the guy? What was it? Uh, who was it? Who was the guy who made all the shots for them? The Suns. That wasn't Booker and Durant. It was Payne. Somebody else had a crazy game in that game. Um, yeah, Payne had a big game. But, I, but I, you're talking that series. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Payne. yeah. So they lose those two where they actually played well. Shamit well, had another one too. Shamit. That was it. Was Shamit. Right. But then in the uh, Minnesota series, that was another one where they they fought back and they made it overtime. Like nobody's actually like kicked their ass in a playoffs in a playoff game in three rounds. That Lakers series, all those games were close in the fourth quarter, and they out executed LeBron four times in a row. So I, you know, people are at least are acknowledging how great Jokic is now. But I think he's one of the best offensive players of all time. I really do. I, I he's on a fucking short 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 list for me. And they're going to be really hard to beat. Now, you can go to the finals. It's a bigger stage. The The flow of the of the day is a little different. There's, you know, a hundred people on the court three hours for the game. There's things they haven't seen before. And yeah, Porter could miss a bunch of threes. Murray might not be as good as he was last round. But uh, fundamentally, I just think that team's lights out. And I think they know who they are. I think they know who their seven is. You only need seven in the finals, especially the way the breaks are now with the extra rest. And uh, and I think they should be favored pretty convincingly over either team. Home court, I don't care. Just to clear it up, too, because I think your last five-year thing might be right. I think the Milwaukee one would be the only one that would be a little debatable. Uh, there's no way of proving it, so I'm not going to sit here and pretend. But that the Nuggets lost in five to Golden State just last year. But if you look at who Denver well, didn't no, have. Well, no Murray, though. No, that's the point. Is, yes. Yeah. Is, is you're going through it, and you're like, they didn't have Murray. They didn't have Michael Porter Jr. Um, Aaron Gordon was with the team. They didn't have KCP, who's looked like, you know, he's looking at that Lakers Westbrook trade again the other day. And Oof. I'm going, my God, like that's, that KCP part of it gets completely lost in, in all this He was guarding LeBron too. like pretty confidently in that Lakers series. You didn't mention right. Bruce Brown either, who I think's been just perfect for them. Do you yeah, see those Bruce Brown quotes? He was on some podcast talking about, um, about being on this team versus the Nets last year and what a great what a great teammate Harden was. And when Harden left, they just became this team that just the Nets just became this isolation team and now he's on this team that has ball movement and stuff. I think they're really good. I think uh the eight the I mean the seventeen Warriors are the best team I've seen this century other than maybe the O one Lakers. And I thought the O seven Spurs were really good. And I, that's what this Nuggets team reminds me of is the 07 Spurs. Like just the way they play together, it's just so beautiful. Um, and yeah, and this version of Jokic is the better offensive player than 07 Duncan was. So for me, they're way up there and I, I don't think people fully see it yet. And I well, think they will. They will in the finals because they will. depending on what the matchups were. And yeah, you're right. Like I just want like Demarcus Cousins played five games in that series last year against Golden State. <laughs> right. So it's not just the injuries. It just it's important to be like 
people listening to you say, I think they're that much better than everybody else. You're like, wait a minute, didn't they just play last year? And like, well, they played the same franchises, but they're not even close yeah, to being the same team. And there was no Murray. Right. And we can't, you know, we've we've both probably talked about this on our pods before, but the Murray Jokic thing is so special at this point. The way those two guys play together, it's really moved up the ladder of this is one of the best two man combos I've seen. Right? Yeah, it's they just not, are so attuned. Right. It's it's very Stockton and Malone, except yes. not the most boring fucking thing ever. Right. It's it's a little more of the Nash Nowitzki, what those guys had with a little Nash Amari thrown in. But the, the difference is the big guy is the creator. And Murray, he just knows it was so much fun to watch in person those two games where it's not just the handoffs and how they know each other, but he's also 280 pounds and just is setting these crazy picks and these guys don't know how to get around them, right? If you think the Celtics are having trouble with the Miami double screens, wait till this fucking series. The idea of Rob Williams fouling out in the first six minutes on Jokic up fakes is is horrifying. Um, Horford's going to have to, if they win game seven, because, you know, leading, you know, there's a there was a version of events if Boston had run through it. You go, okay, you know, they were in it last year. This is, but the size between Gordon and then Porter Jr. having certain rebounding nights where if he's in the fight for the rebounds, you're like, okay, this guy can jump out of the gym and he's 6'10", and he's got this wingspan. That's kind of a hit or miss thing. Um, but he's had some really big rebounding games on top of everything else. And then he can like kind of fade. But all of the role players hit shots against the Lakers. It was a dominant, dominant performance. But specific to the matchup against, like say Miami wins game seven, that's yeah. so much size for their front line, which also speaks to like this weird thing that I've seen the last couple of years with a couple contenders. Maybe Miami didn't think they'd be enough of a contender, but these teams that'll head into the postseason, like the devaluing of the big man is not to the same level of the running back because the running back part of the NFL, I completely understand, endorse, and you know, I'm not changing my mind on that because sometimes things will zag yeah. so much that it's like, well, you know what you should start doing is taking running backs. But like, no, no, I think this is actually the conclusion that you shouldn't have done this and, and it's okay yeah uh but with the lack of big options going oh you know we may not play this guy how do you not have another big if you're miami how do you not have another big if you're golden state how do you not have another big if you're phoenix right. a couple years ago in that finals loss they were available at the trade deadline you could always had a bunch are of them they're always available and even if you don't think that guy makes a ton of sense for your team every night i there's certain matchups and denver is one of them where it's not traditional post plays, but it's just a lot of size along that front line over the course of a playoff series. Yeah. Where you go, do we even have a, do we have another body we can throw minutes at? It's, it's not going to be Cody Zeller, I'll tell you that much. It's not going to be Kevin Love. But yeah, you made the key point. They may, maybe they didn't realize. And their salary situation is way, way up there too. But maybe they um, thought it was Zeller. I don't know. Maybe they did think it was Zeller, but it's, um, I'm glad I you brought up the size thing with Denver. I talked about this the other day. I don't think people realize how big Porter is until you see it. Like, he's a legit 6'10". This is as well as I think... I thought in that Lakers series, that was about as comfortable as I've seen him look since Murray came back, where he just kind of know He, he, he kind of knows how to pick his spots now, and he knows he's not going to be a guy who's going to score 30 points a game, you know? But um, but they the way they kind of unleash him in little pockets of the games, I think they figured that part out. And then the fact the fact that uh, Bruce Brown and your guy Uncle Jeff, that's why. See, in my heart, I do feel like we're headed toward Denver Boston because there's all these scenarios of like Jokic, he's Bird 2.0. 
Jeff Green back in Boston. Um, oh my, like Jokic on, on the stage, you know, going to the league's basically most famous franchise, unless you want to argue the Lakers and him having that moment versus like this weird Miami team. That's, that's what makes me feel good about Boston, but I still, I wouldn't, certainly wouldn't bet on it. I can just see all the narratives already unfolding in my head. Here's a question for you. Yeah. As you started talking about the foundation of, of Tatum and Brown. And you're yeah. right. When you start looking at the real playoff totals, you'd be like, how, what are these guys, 40? And it's unbelievable. It, it started so long ago. And that's why you're like, well, wait, you're playing like a team that has no resume, like no toughness resume. Like the last Kyrie year team, the team 19. that probably, right, the team that I've disliked probably more than any basketball team in a long time. Because it was like, once we're all together, it was like, you guys have never done anything together. Like, what are yeah. you, what are you talking about? You, there's no, it hasn't, it's been all over the place. It's sort of weird. Some of the non Kyrie numbers where you were like, wait, are they better without him? And I'm like, that can't be true. The, the numbers may say that, but it can't be true. But they carry themselves with a team that had this real battle tested resume. And even though Boston doesn't have a title uh, with this group, there's some real battle scars where they came out on the other side of it. And when they're down 3-0, you're like, right. how do you have all that other stuff? And then how are you in this situation? So them being heading into a game seven as unlikely it is kind of makes a little sense for who they are. But let me uh, let me ask you this. Would you rather have prime Tatum and Brown or prime Pearson Walker? <laughs> Come on. Wait. <laughs> I'd rather have prime Tatum and Brown. Would you think Pierce is better than Tatum? I just thought, unfortunately, Antoine in a, against actual good teams was a losing player. Do you feel like Antoine is second puberty for Celtics fans? Where yeah. you go through like, you know, science puberty, and then you go through basketball puberty, where once you realize Antoine wasn't that good, that's when you became an adult. That was when Kenya Martin just basically ripped his heart out of his chest for six straight games. It was like, oh, I guess I guess he's not going to be one of the best five guys in the league. Twenty Jordan, twenty something me argued was a pro Antoine. Like his skills, he could pass a little. I'm he still could do pro all these Antoine. Things. It's just he was never he was never like a top fifteen guy, and I don't think Jalen is either. But he's top twenty five. I got to ask you about Missoula quick because I do think we've had two series in a row. You're already smiling. Two series in a row where they start the series and there's no plan and just some basic head-scratching stuff. And then as the series goes along, some adjustments, some stumbling in. I, I think he's done, for the most part, a pretty good job these last couple of games. <laughs> I do. I do. I, I think the timeouts have been a little better. I didn't mind the offense they had that. The only thing I hate is the walking it up. Um... And I don't think it's his fault that these guys keep falling asleep on those double screens. I can't, I got to blame the players on that. I, I, I can't imagine the coaches are all smarter than you and I about basketball. I can't imagine they're not in a film room going, see, watch this. Gabe Vincent's waiting for you to turn your head and he moves four feet and then they give him a wide open three. But in general, I just feel like uh, he's got to get some credit for the fact that his team just came back from 3-0 and didn't quit. Now you could say it was part of, partly his fault that they quit in game three, but 
there's some, there's something. My bigger point is, I think he comes back win or lose. Even if they lose tomorrow, I, I think he's shown enough that they'll bring him back with the bench coach now. I don't think you could have done that if they got swept. Do you think an aggregator site will say, breaking news, Bill Simmons says Missoula is back? <laughs> Maybe. That's my goal. That's my goal. It's possible. This well, they, gonna, they didn't jump on my son's Kevin Young thing. He's getting the son's job. Keep, I keep telling who? people on the podcast. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, Noted. he's getting the job. It's going to be Kevin Young will be the next son's coach, but don't listen to me. All right. Okay, here's my, here's my question for you. You didn't even answer my Maz question. Well, I didn't. I didn't really think there was. A, do you want me to tell you that I think he should be fired? Um, no, no, but I I, but do you feel better about him than you did a week ago? I probably never felt as bad about him because I always blame the players first. Uh, yeah, you know, I thought it was going to be a really tough conversation if they had been swept, but I'm still not sure that they would have done it. And then I also would defer to the people that are in the building every single day with them. You know, it's the ownership and it's Brad Stevens being like, "Do we think we have somebody who's completely?" incapable of doing this or do we know that you know we had another rookie head coach is it learning on the job is not a lot of help because you said something last week that i thought was the best take on the missoula thing in general is that you almost felt bad for him because it didn't feel fair yep that he couldn't make those i still feel that way so at least he fought through it what was your question then we got to do our cba stuff uh boston leads 79 72 going into the fourth quarter butler put back on what was just a great position offensive rebound at 759, Miami takes the lead 83-82. That's an 11-3 run, no timeout. Mm. No timeout from what last week was he was called second row Joe. Uh he he didn't do the thing everybody wants him to do again, and it'll be forgotten. It'll be forgotten because they won the game and that would have been brought up today. Very fair. Okay. Russell and I did a lot of work on this new CBA. And we have a lot of thoughts. So that's next. All right. So we're going to end the part. We're going to talk about the new CBA and the ramifications that we have going forward because I still haven't heard the perfect conversation about it. And you did a lot of work last week on your pod trying to figure out why Philly was probably screwed with this James Harden thing. I had heard about the second apron and I, I didn't fully understand it. So I just like spent 90 minutes just reading everything, sketching stuff out and trying to understand why they created this new system. So just very quickly for people listening, everything kicks in next year. The salary cap is 134 million. The luxury tax is 162. I swear this isn't going to sound like math. The first apron for the tax is 169. And then the second apron of the tax is 179.5. And if you are above the second apron, all of these terrible things happen to your team, including you cannot use the mid-level exception. You cannot sign buyout players during the season. You cannot take more money back in trades. You cannot send cash out in trades. And you cannot deal first-round picks seven years out. So, for example, Dallas wouldn't have been able to make the Kyrie Irving trade. Um, Kate Phoenix wouldn't have been able to make the Durant trade. Harden to Brooklyn never happens. Brogdon to Boston, that doesn't happen. Uh, the 
the Gallinari and DiFincenzo signings last summer, Joe Ingles to Milwaukee, none of that happens. And the Clippers don't get Westbrook and Miami doesn't get love. So those are just like basic run-of-the-mill stuff. Um, and it's going to put a shitload of pressure on these teams to stay under. I have a whole bunch of thoughts on how those teams might feel about this, which I think might surprise you. But if we're just looking at second apron teams in 2020, in this season that we just had, the Clips were at 192.9, way over. Warriors were at 192.4, way over. Milwaukee, 182.9, over. Just under were the Celtics, Dallas, and Phoenix. They were like right under the second apron. But if you go to next year, Golden State's at 210.6 with the pool contract. So they're fucked. They are second apron. It's happening. Clippers are at 201.8 plus Westbrook free agency. Miami's at 173.1. So they're 6 million away. And they have Gabe Vincent, Max Struess, and Kevin Love as free agents. Atlanta's at 170.4. Denver's at 168.7. Boston's at 166 and has Grant Williams as an RFA. Phoenix is at 165.6, so they're 13 million under, and they have free agents Craig and Landale, Okoji and Biombo. Milwaukee is at 157.8, and they have Lopez as a free agent, and he's going to be a 20 million dollar guy in free agency. So you're going to have all these teams trying to figure out: do we fuck with the second apron or not? And it's going to change how we do stuff. I have way bigger picture stuff about what how I think this is going to long term affect the league. But short term, why do you think they made this kick in next season? Because it feels really punitive for teams that had already built rosters a certain way who are now going to be fucked next season. I feel like you have a better answer than I do. That's why you're asking that question. No, I, I don't have an answer to that question. Because usually like when they, do, when they change things, like when they talked about, oh, remember the double draft? We're going to let players come in right out of high school well, we got to do that four or five years down the road because that's not fair to teams that traded their picks or whatever. Like teams need time to prepare for that. In this, they gave teams no time to prepare for anything. So you have the Warriors who are just like, oh, I get, basically, the Warriors might have to trade pool this summer. They, they just like, hey, Spurs, you want pool? Here, take them. We'll take a protected first and whatever because then that will allow us to do all these other things. Um I just think it's weird that they didn't at least wait a year. I think the draft pick restrictions for the second apron teams, that's not going to be until 24-25. Okay. Um, so that's just a small part of it. As far as, you know, looking at all this and, and you know, the announcements made and then you kind of dig through and then you go to the people that trust it certainly better than you or I understand it. Um, and then you're like, well, wait, does this mean... Does this mean there's kind of like this philosophical hard cap that's still technically a soft cap? Like, because that's no, what it's it a, felt. It's a hard cap. That's what it felt like. And now, if we get into all the like, is there actually a real hard cap? Because if you just look at basketball related income and the split that's essentially 50 50, then we're operating with a hard cap in place already. But team to team, it's always been soft as opposed to the hard one for the NFL. When you look at the restrictions at the top of this, the stockpiling of talent for the top teams like that, that feels like it's over. It just feels like they're going to be able Which to Which is why we're old, talking about this. Right. The teams are going to be able to keep their guys 
But to look at Golden State and say, you know, or any model, you're like, okay, you have three players that you drafted. They're all max. They're on kind of like their second max. So the escalators have gone crazy. You're putting together all this stuff. You don't get to buy out somebody else, some dude who wants to ring chase with you. You don't even get your taxpayer mid-level, which usually can add a nice player where you're about $6 million per, you know, yeah. leads to like $20 million or something like that. You're right. The DiVincenzo thing doesn't happen. The Gallup thing doesn't happen. So it felt like a real win. Apparently, there were teams that weren't even close to these aprons that actually didn't want this to happen for the team part of it. But it feels the closest that we've ever had to like a hard cap in recent memory, even if it feels like these first and second apron violations are so far away from a middle and the bottom of the NBA salaries. So here's how I'd explain it to people who are super confused right now and feel like they're in an AP history test or something. I think the players union really, really fucked this up and they've fucked stuff up in the past, but I don't think they fully realize what they've unleashed with this because I studied everything. I talked to some people. What they have now created, which we're going to have going forward, is a Hollywood system for an NBA team where you're going to have two stars that you're going to be able to put on your poster and in your commercial, right? Like a movie, like Top Gun Maverick. It's like, well, it's Tom Cruise. He gets a shitload of money. And then we got Miles Teller. Nice. Shout and out. Then, yeah. And then now we have a couple role players. Like we got John Hamm and Glenn Powell. But for the most part. John Hamm's not a role player. Well, whatever. But he's, you know, in half the movie. He's your friend. Um, well, but I'm saying like you could make, you really just need Cruise to make that movie and you can fill in the other spots. And what the NBA is creating now is here are your two awesome guys. And then everybody else has to fight for the other like 40 million, right? Because if we have stars, all the star contracts are going to be 50 million, 55 million, 60 million a year. Well, let's add it up. Let's let's use Celtics, Brown, and Tatum as an example. Tatum, his next contract, he's going to be making like 60 million a year. Brown, if he signs his deal, it's going to be almost 50. So that's 110. So now the Celtics have 70 million left to spend on everybody else in their roster. So even if you say like, oh, I only care about having seven other guys with those guys, it's 70 million for seven guys. And what's going to happen and what the, I think the union really fucked up on is the middle class is going to get destroyed, like destroyed. It's going to be the opposite of what's happened in football um, because everybody's going to gravitate toward the big, big guys and they're only going to be able to afford two of them. But like, here's an example. I, I use Boston. Here's an even better example. And this is, I can't believe like a team like OKC voted for this. What does OKC do? What do they do a couple years from now where they have Shea, they have Giddy, they have Chet Holmgren, they have uh, fucking awesome Jalen Williams. They have those four guys. And all four of those guys are like 40 to $50 million guys. You're not going to be able to keep all four of them. Like that era is over. So these teams like them, like Utah, these teams that are stockpiling all these first round assets so they can build these awesome young teams, you're actually getting fucked now with that strategy because you're not going to be able to afford all those guys at the same time. So there's that. And then you have the Boston aspect of it where it's like, is it worth it to pay $115 million a year to two guys and still deal with that second apron? Um, I also think the rich owners kind of want the second apron because it's a hard cap and it'll prevent them from overspending. It's almost, it's almost like a deterrent for themselves. And I don't think the union realized that either. 
So long story short, there's like 450 people in the NBA, something like that, 475. It usually ends up being more, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right. You're right to the number. It's like 480 play or whatever. And I would say 90% of those people are fucked now because all the money is going to be going to 60 guys. And then everybody else is going to fight it out. Like the DeAndre Ayton Max, there's no way Phoenix matches that now if the, if we had the second apron stuff. So I just think the league's going to dramatically change. And I don't think people fully realize it yet. The Top Gun model is going to be the model we're heading toward, right? Or it's or it's going to be like Homeland where it's like you, like if, if Homeland like spent, like Brian Cox was like a franchise guy and it's like, all right, we got Brian Cox and then we got to have all these actors you never heard of. You can do it. You can nail it but it's really hard now. And I, I I just don't know what this means for the league. So you're basically saying like, if you spend money on Steve Carell and Will Ferrell, we only may have money left over for James Spader. And maybe not even James Spader. It's like James Spader's brother, Bob. I like James Spader, to be honest <laughs> with you, retroactively. Like he, he tried yeah. something different, went for it. I thought he executed it well. Well, so- Step Brothers is a good example. It's like, we got Will Ferrell and John C. Riley. But we can't have Adam Scott. We can't have Catherine Hahn. We're replacing those people with like with cheap talent because we spent all our money on Will Ferrell and John C. Riley. Okay, so there's there's a lot to kind of go through here, and you're right. Like when I look, but at you it, agree I, with when, me, right? Like that, like from the stakes. Like I feel like those are the stakes now. Yeah, because it's not. The argument would be, well, wait a minute. The players didn't fuck themselves because it's still the revenue split. And, oh, they added in the licensing stuff, which still seems weird that it took this long to get the licensing stuff in there. And it's not the ownership stuff, too, is good. Right. It's not that you can't spend this money. You can do those things. The problem is, is once you spend a certain amount of money, especially keeping your own people, which is your OKC example, which is probably still a little lofty in that like were you really going to have four max guys for that team but they have the assets they have the the incoming assets that maybe they would but then again would Oklahoma City actually spend that kind of money on a team maybe I don't know that's a different topic but the argument would be that wait you can still go ahead and spend that money the point is that once you're past the second apron you're like well who am I even allowed to spend it on because you're not going to be able to spend it on anybody other than minimum contracts. So you're not going to be able to round out the roster. So whether that was a talent dispersal thing, I think the biggest point of it is like, what do the players truly understand about where that middle class is going to go? Because are you then going to have guys that should have been, you know, in that four-year, $100 million range that we're talking about here with some really nice players where Jalen Brunson gets that contract, and now that contract looks like he's, he's on the cheap in comparison to where some other guys get like seven, eight years into the league. So does that contract now become, and I'm not even talking about Jalen Brunson, but does that contract become a lot harder to even put on your balance sheet when you have the Jalen Brown and Tatum situation, when you have a Durant and Booker situation, which is again why I think Phoenix looking at this going, you did the Durant trade in face of now one of the most difficult times to round out the rest of the roster. You know, in the past when you'd add the pieces, you'd think, okay, well, give it another year. You know, Miami each year added something else to it. Golden State was still able to add some other pieces to it. I thought even Boston was a little light in 2007, 2008. They win it that year, but there were other pieces that you could put around it. If you're Phoenix right now, you're going, wait, like, what's what's our move? Like, we know we have depth and option issues. What's our move, especially... You know, for everybody that wants to do this Kyrie sign and trade thing that thinks solves your problems, which I'll never fucking understand. Uh, <laughs> if you do something like that, 
then it starts to trigger other things where you're like, even if you thought this was the right basketball decision, you're allowing yourself no flexibility. In the case of Durant, how many more years do you actually have with him as a true title contender, uh, not based on skill, but totally based on his injury history? I'll go further. I think if they knew this stuff was coming, I don't think the Phoenix would have made the KD trade because it would have been irresponsible. You can't do it. I'm looking at their uh, their active roster. So they have Duran at 47.6 next year and Booker's at 36. But then Booker jumps to 50.05 in 25. So in the 24-25 season, they're paying $101.2 million for two guys. Two guys. So that's $79 million for the rest of the roster before they trigger that second apron thing. They have Aiton on the books for 34. So now, now, now I have $34 million for the rest of my roster, basically, to stay away, or 40, or 40 million, whatever. There's so many different big ramifications for the contenders. Like, Grant Williams is a good one. Guess who the Celtics aren't re-signing? Grant Williams. They can't. There's no way they can do it now. They have, they're on the books next year for $166 million. And that's with a bunch of people coming off. Like you have your 1 million, your 1.2 million, like people like Billy Griffin, stuff like that. But the Celtics think, core, if you look at the sheet, other than Grant, like that whole thing's pretty intact. They're it's actually pretty like, good. this is like a two year, this is year one of this two year window where it's like, you still have all these guys. Right. Go ahead. But, but Grant, even if you're just filling minimum contracts, you're close to that second apron anyway next year. And Grant's potentially like a $20 million guy. Like, like San Antonio, who's going to have a shitload of cap space and has a chance to be pretty good right away with Wemby, they're going to have the ability to get two awesome kind of guys like that, right? They might have the ability to awesome. offer Grant, well, awesome role players, right? Okay. Like Grant's been in big games. They could yeah. offer Grant a contract. I just wanted, like, a, I just wanted a clarification on awesome. Well, I when you awesome said awesome players. role player, I would agree but with you. But yeah. let's say they go 18... 16, 14, three years for Grant, right? Where it decreases. And then they also do that with Brooke Lopez. And now they have Brooke Lopez and Grant with Wemby because they can just use the second apron stuff against these teams. I don't know how Milwaukee keeps Lopez. I I don't see it. I don't know how Golden State keeps Draymond Poole and Clay. I think it's actually impossible. And I think they're going to have to attach Kaminga to one of their guys to to get under the thing, unless they just say, fuck it, we're going to pay the apron this one year and then figure it out. But you do that, there's so many bad ramifications to that. Um, the other thing, if you're, one, if you're like the smaller market teams, this is another thing I didn't get, how they voted for this. They're not getting the luxury tax paychecks from these different rich teams anymore, right? Like Bomber just spending whatever and the Warriors spending whatever. And the, and the lower, the Charlotte and OKC, they can just grab these luxury... Now, if nobody's going to go over a certain level, you're not getting that kind of money well, either. Okay, yeah, but I I looked at that. It's it's very rare that any team would end up the tax uh, floor or the the salary cap floor. Ninety percent of the cap, you have to spend ninety percent of the cap. Um, and if you don't, you have to pay everybody on the team the no, remaining. I'm not, I'm not number. talking about that. I'm just talking about teams that aren't tax teams getting money from the teams that are the tax teams. Yeah, because the they way have I, that penalty stuff. Yeah, but the way I read that is that the tax dispersal checks wouldn't go to a team that's below the floor, right? No, but they but they could just have a payroll of like 140 and get tax money from other teams. So there's going to be less tax money. Um, 
I think like the days of, like last year, we had Joe Ingles, we Gallinari. There's that whole class of guys that are getting like eight, nine million. PJ Tucker from Philly. I just think those contracts are gone. You know, it's like the equivalent of the NFL when you, when you have those, the veterans like in their early 30s, like the Bobby Wagner types where it's like, wow, Bobby Wagner's going to play for the Rams for two million bucks. That's what's going to happen in the NBA. You're going to have these really, really good playoff proven guys that are now going to be available for one and a half, two million. So in a weird way, it might help some of these teams once that all shakes out because you're going to have te- guys going, well, if I'm only going to make this, I might as well go play with Jokic or I might as well go play with Curry. So I don't know, maybe it strengthens them, but I just think when we lose the ability for our contenders to keep Grant Williams, keep Brooke Lopez, people like that, that's going to have a dramatic impact on the league. It just is. Yeah, the teams may say, all right, screw it in this first cycle through it and keep everybody and then go, we were screwed anyway, and now we'll be even more screwed, like moving forward. Like this will be right. it. Because I always thought the Giannis thing would be really interesting because even in the best version of events for the Bucks, they were going to have to reinvent themselves a second time. Like there was going to be the next stage of Giannis and how they would build it around him. And that's why I brought up, like, again, I'm not saying this would happen, but a hypothetical, like, does Middleton just pick up his player option for $40 million next year? Or does he opt out knowing that, hey, let's do something less annually so you keep another piece, but I need longer-term money? You know, a lot of times I'll always default to probably the easier one where Milwaukee's like, this might not be the best plan, but can we really move on for somebody like this for like a draft pick? You know, that's where you get the really ballsy GMs. That's like the Danny Ainge stuff that he would have done. Maybe he does it in Utah. He certainly would have done it in Boston. Like if you like somebody in the draft, you go, you know what? I wonder if I wonder if I don't get a little aggressive here with a weird package for a team that's a title contender to right. reinvent this stuff on the fly. Like you have to have real balls as a GM to even pull that stuff off. So what I my guess would be, it's always kind of like the state, like we'll have we'll see the rosters. Will teams I guess I should ask it this way. Will teams start thinning out stuff? Will they start making those decisions this summer? Or will they they take the hit knowing that having no change in plan is better than planning for something down the road when I don't even know what the rest of my team is like? Are certain teams going to try to get in front of this to have flexibility a year or two from now? Or are teams just going to say, all right, well, I don't even know what that world looks like. So I'll just stick with what I have, knowing how punitive it'll become and knowing I'll have even less flexibility than I do now. And that's why I always bring up the Phoenix thing. Like if they just say, ah, fuck it, let's just run it back. <laughs> like, okay. And and for the life of me, I know Aiton's disappointing. I know Chris Paul's aged. And this was the year where it, it feels very real that the decline has happened. But why is Kyrie a solution? And why is Kyrie in a sign and trade in versions of that, that contract where they would get hard capped. Like, why would you do that for that guy? Because seven years ago, he hit a big shot. Um, I, there's another part that I want to stay on this too, real quick. I don't know necessarily, you know, if the players are looking around going, wait a minute, did we did we fuck the middle class here a little bit? Like, it's still a 50-50 revenue well, split. they did. But what does this mean for like my group of players? And then the other part of that is, well, hey, the stars are the stars and they're actually still undervalued and they deserve to make all the money they possibly can. But this feels a lot like the lack of cap smoothing that happened prior to Durant signing with the Warriors, where it was very clear either the players didn't understand it or were told something different. And Michelle Roberts, who did an awful job in 
explaining this and and people in the media kept writing about how amazing it was and if you criticized her then it was you were criticizing her for the wrong reasons i actually think the real bias was that it it was funny that you people were defending her and then if you weren't like team michelle roberts then there was something wrong with you and right. i've talked i've talked to then enough you're a former player. right right and then i talked to enough players to i feel really comfortable with this and for whatever reason like I love John Wall's quote about Reggie Jackson so fucking much when all that went down, when Alan Crabb and Evan Turner, and look, we were just talking with CJ about this. He's like, I benefited from it, and it was wrong, and that's why this time around, we should have smoothed it out. He's the president of the Players Association. I benefited from it and realized in the moment how wrong it was, and I wanted to make sure this didn't happen again. All right? Yeah. And John Wall goes, like, Reggie Jackson, I make the same as Reggie Jackson. It was the right. best quote. So I think there's a lesson in there, and I promise I'll get to the point. You know, whenever we talk about like environmental stuff, right, I'm of the, of the mindset that you're not going to get everybody on board until your water's brown and your kids like are orange, <laughs> right? There's, that's just the way we are. We, we don't, we can be told something's happening, but we don't understand it until it's actually happened. And in the non-cap smoothing out, you were told philosophically what would happen. It had to happen to you. It had to happen to the players. It had to happen to all these guys. Be like, wait, so justice free agent class gets paid? Wait, the yeah. Warriors get fucking Kevin Durant? Like, wait, it's happening. And the lesson in that is that we're really bad at listening. We're really good at, at going, oh, this actually did happen to me. And now, now I understand it better. That's why with this new CBA, we need these, we, it needs to play out. Like it le needs to live for a year or two to then go, oh, this is what they were either intending to do. This is what the unintended consequence was. Yeah, but, that's we why can, but you and I can kind of see it already though, where it's going. I think that's the alarming part. And I, I think maybe it came from a good place, right? I think the, the owners and maybe the players too wanted to put some mechanisms in that would make it a little more likely that people would stay with their teams, the best players, right? I, I, think, I think that's where this comes from. Do you think some of these aprons too, when you look at how restrictive it can get, that that was like another, you know how like the Rose extension thing was like, you can't have two of those guys on the same team. And you're like, yeah. oh, you know what? That, that was about the best players that are drafted and get that ex extra bump on their extension, the rookie extension. That's about, making sure those guys can't all load up again like LeBron, all right? That's There's what a, that is. It's, I think that's what they're trying to do, but I, yeah. I don't think they realize how they're going to decimate the middle class. What's weird is football, I just think the football system's better. And there's some stuff, like, I don't love the franchise tag. I, it, it feels, you I know, like it. you look at the situation like Lamar in Baltimore, it just feels wrong. But for the most part, the spirit of football seemed, and I have a shitload of issues with football, but the most important thing about football is that it's really hard to lose your star quarterback. The quarterback's the most important guy in the team. He's the face of the franchise. And we just don't have movement with quarterbacks. And they're able to always like redo deals and um, look ahead and try to be proactive about signing somebody. And then even if it goes sideways, like it did with Lamar in Baltimore, you can still end up keeping them. In basketball, you can't rip up deals you, if it goes sideways, you're going to lose the guy. And there seems to be 
no real connective tissue to the team and the fan base with the guy that they just watched grow into the guy. So they've tried to change some of that with how big these supermax things can be and stuff like that. But it doesn't give the team the tax relief in the way that I wish it did. Like to me, it's like, look at Curry. Curry's been on the Warriors since 09 and he makes a shitload of money. He makes like 60 million a year. But they get no credit for the fact that this was their guy. They drafted him. They've kept him this whole time. He stayed. Nobody gets a benefit from that. Where you think like it would be logical after like year eight or year nine, maybe it's his contract, 2% of it doesn't count against the tax each year after year eight, right? And you've been, if, if he's been on the team for 14 years, so that's seven years, 2% per year. Now that contract, 14% of it doesn't count against the tax like incentivize these guys to want to stay together. And they're trying to do it in this roundabout way that now it's going to be two guys and then the supporting cast changes year after year after year. And then we lose what we had with the Nuggets this year, you know, or we lose with what we had with the Warriors um, last year, where it was like they had real connective tissue because they had these four or five guys that had been together a while. I look at a team like OKC and I, I just don't know how they're going to ever build it. You know, they're trying to build it the old fashioned way and be smart and do the draft and, um, and Giddy's going to be a max guy. Shea is going to be underpaid eventually. In the NFL, you'd just be like, Shea, we've ripped up your deal. You have a better deal. And the NBA can't really do that. What if Holmgren's awesome? Jalen Williams is going to be a borderline max guy. You can't have all those guys. So I don't like when teams are smart and they get penalized for it. And basically we've turned into this league now where it's like, you just need to get your two guys. Just make sure you don't fuck up the two guys, right? Atlanta's going to be in that situation with Trey Young and DeJounte. Are those going to be your two guys? Because once you've decided, that's it. Those are your two guys. That Atlanta Minnesota, thing. Towns yeah. and Edwards. And, and Gobert, that's another trade that would never happen now. They could never do that Gobert trade now because now you have Towns, Gobert, and Edwards. You can't keep all three of those guys. Yeah, Atlanta has, and it's not even about the Trey stuff that we talk about all the time, the DeJounte and him going to market and moving the assets and starting to understand the divide between maybe Travis Schlenk at the time being like, you know, I don't think this is actually a great idea. Like this doesn't right. make a ton of sense for us because even though it's cool now, like this could be a really bad transaction. And then it's like, you know, it's back to the old stuff that we were talking about, joking about Antoine a little bit, but back then it was whoever your best player was was just your max player and you go all right if i'm paying somebody 200 million i've got to make sure that he's steph and not bradley beal right like our 200 million dollar guy is is awesome and guarantees us like a real chance in the playoffs and then the other team's going our 200 million guy puts up big numbers and we don't sniff anything and then you well, think even, about think about winger with the wizards Got Kuzma coming up as a free agent. You Porzingis got Porzingis a who's going to opt out, and you're already paying Beal fifty million a year. And it's like, do I keep, do I keep my big three that went forty and forty two last year, or thirty eight <laughs> and forty four, or whatever? Is this is this what I'm going to lock down? And guess three. who gets blamed if this doesn't work? Winger. Well, he can at least say he didn't do the Beal deal, and I still think Beal, even though you and I disagree on this one, um, I think there's a play there. I think there's a way to move him. <sighs> Uh, good, good that contract. Yeah, well, well, I'm not saying it's going to be awesome. Look, I, I, I think there's looking at some of the CBA stuff, though. I do think that there's ways for teams like it's about the transactions. I felt like it was more about the transactions outside of what you've done. 
But if you hit on enough of your own guys and you're paying them that much, it's just going to be a different world now of filling in the gaps, of filling in the gaps the way, the way that we've been used to it now for like, I don't know if it's 20 years, maybe it's a little less than that. But when you had the dudes, then you knew the DiVincenzos, the Gallinari's, the, all of those guys. Being able to re-sign your seventh guy for still a pretty big number, I yeah. don't. You can keep him. You can keep that sixth or seventh guy for a number that's a lot bigger than he would get somewhere else, or I should say a lot bigger than other people's sixth or seventh guys. But then it just means that all of the filling in the spaces the rest of the way, I don't know how teams are going to do it now. Like that's the part that jumps out the most that there's all of these restrictions if you've hit on your own guys or screwed up the guys you paid. Well, so Bruce Brown, good, uh, good example, player option this year. They're paying Jokic 46.9 and Jamal almost 34. So that's, they're over 80 with those two. Right. But they're then lucky. They have, they're lucky their two's only 80. Right. And then they have Porter and Gordon for a combined 55 next year. So now I'm in the 135 range and I have KCP at 14.7. So now I'm at 150 and I only have five guys. Now I got to figure out 29 million for my other guys. Hey, th- this is why we want to bring this up. We're putting on the radar now. Like the Lakers, every Laker fan I know is like, oh, we'll resign Reeves and Rui, right? Reeves will be, he'll probably get the 98.7 from somebody or close. Rui, oh, he's a $20 million a year guy in the old, that it's like, actually, is he? Because the, the Rui is a $20 million guy now thing. How fast that changed. This is like the Fournier thing all over again. You right. couldn't get a first for Fournier. Then, then he gets $72 million. million dollar guy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Although the last year is not fully guaranteed, I don't believe. Rui, who all Washington could get was a second rounder for him. But then it's like, oh, yeah, he's a $20 million a year guy. <laughs> well, like, here's, what, here's what the Lakers might happen. are looking at. I don't know. It seems, it seems to be a little lofty. but The Lakers are at 94 for four guys. They have Reeves and Rui as restricted free agents. And let's just say they sign both of them and it's a combined $42 million a year. So now we're at close to 140. They still have Lonnie Walker. They have Schroeder, D'Lo. And if there's any chance for them to get Kyrie, D'Lo has to be in that trade. And Kyrie's probably like 30. The way I see it, I don't think it's possible for them to bring back Reeves and Rui and get Kyrie. You'd have to go over the apron. And then if you go over the apron now, I can't get buyout guys. We can't get a mid-level, all all the stuff we've talked about. Um, Philly's another one. You talked about Philly on your podcast. Let's say the cost for Harden is $40 million a year. Philly's at 124.2 right now. They have Harden as a free agent. They have Niang and they have uh, Milton, who they'll probably let go. Um, if they let Harden go, they are, there actually might be some opportunity for them because they'll have some space maybe to sign and trade, do whatever. I look at Minnesota. They're at 144 right now, and Nas Reed's a free agent. I think we talked, we joked about Rui. I think Nas Reed actually might be like a $17, $18 million guy. I think Nas Reed is good. Um, so they probably lose him. So now that Gobert trade gets worse because you've lost Walker Kessler, all those picks. You lost, you lost uh, Vanderbilt. Now you're also losing Nas Reed and you've created this team that has Gobert and Anthony Edwards and Towns and you basically can't put anyone around them anymore. Uh, what happens to Jaden McDaniels in two years when he's a, when he's a new contract guy, do you, are you able to keep all four of those guys? So yeah, that's why we're talking about this now because I think when we get to the summer, I think people are going to be like, wait, what's going on? The Celtics like literally can't afford Grant Williams? And I think there's going to be like 10, 12 teams like that. 
The other thing I, I think it's going to be kind of fun too is, is the first round picks now that are all coming due where, you know, there's already been a little bit of it, but this, this group of teams and I'll, I'll defend it forever. If you can trade for Paul George and it locks you into Kawhi, even though it has not worked out, it's been a massive disappointment and it's been really expensive and you just lost Winger, who is a, a terrific executive. So I think that's a slam dunk hire for the Wizards. Me too. But it's going to, it's kind of back to my like smoothing the cap environmental point. Like when it starts happening, like it's easy to trade picks. Like the trading future picks is like the adjustable rate mortgage. We are like, well, what are the payments going to go to in like seven years? And nobody ever says, I'll probably be doing worse. I shouldn't right. sign this mortgage. Everybody, the way we are wired, will be like, oh, the payments are only this for like however. I mean, hell, you could just talk about it with credit cards. Like no introductory, like, oh, yeah, well, things will be way better. I'll just pay that off like when I'm kicking ass a year from now, 15 months, adjustable rate. It's so easy to trade picks that you might not even be around for. But when you're going to see these teams, maybe some of these teams voted for this because they're not going to have any picks that they have to sign. So like, oh, good point. It, it doesn't even matter. Uh, granted, that's such a small number of teams. That that's, you know, I'm just sort of making a joke about the whole thing. But we are heading into like bills being due for a lot of these teams. And that's why I think you're right that we could have. Wait, that guy's available. How did that happen? It might not happen this summer. It might it might just be like, hey, this is going to suck. We'll take our medicine later, which is exactly the same thing as the draft pick deal, right? It's it's a different it's a different mechanism to improve your roster or to change your roster. But I'm glad you brought it up because when I was looking through, like the Reeves problem, the Lakers have maybe more than anything is that the way he's his contract works. Even if they want a match, which they can, they have to backload the hell out of it. So we all love Austin Reeves. There's a number at the back end of that contract. They're like, wait, he's going to be on the books for that. So what does that mean for AD in a new contract? Where's LeBron at yeah. this point? You know, so now Davis or and LeBron, LeBron might retire. And, yeah, right. Well, he, he might retire. He's, you know, left that Denver series. He thought maybe it was time to go. Could be time. Uh, yeah, I'm going to need more. He might be done. Can you say I'm back if you never retired? It's terrible. I've mentioned it now in my last four podcasts. I'm you have again. I don't. Well, I don't just, know. I got madder about it as the week went along because it's really? just like just take the fucking loss. You got your ass kicked. You got swept. Jokic is the there best player go. in the world. There just we go. Take the took loss two hours. For two hours. Just take it. Took two hours. Um, we got there. Golden State and the Clippers are the two that I don't know what they do next year. Maybe use because you made the point. Maybe these teams just take it. <laughs> Golden State. Is at two ten point six, and DDV has a four point seven million player option. That who knows? Maybe he'll exercise it, but they're going to have to do some uh, some chicanery. And then the Clips at over at almost two oh two already, really with no tradable assets. That you know maybe you know you could try to stick more Marcus Morris on somebody. I, I don't know how you would. I, I'd like if I'm the Spurs, I'm like, cool, I get Marcus Morris for free. I'm not cool. I, I still don't want him. Um, <laughs> and they have Plumlee as a free agent too. So they're going to have no backup center. So those are the two that seem like they're going to get hurt. And then Miami, like, is Gabe Vincent, who's like a legitimate free agent. So Struess, are those like eight figure a year guys for you now? I feel like Gabe Vincent's probably. A ten million dollar a year guy this at this point for somebody? 
Like he wouldn't make sense for the Spurs. I keep bringing up the Spurs, but I, I'm really focused on, I want Wembenyama's team to be good right away. Gabe Vincent on the Spurs, that's nice. Uh, t- Gabe Vincent at 10 million doesn't seem crazy. It's just that there is there the post spo correction. Mm. Like Remember there like was a br- there was a Brad style. there was a Brad Stevens correction there for a while. It's like, wait, yeah. what happened? What happened to this guy? Yeah, I thought Evan Turner was could initiate the offense. Um and then Phoenix, I don't know what happens with them because they're they're not gonna have Craig and Landau and Okoji and Biombo. Or they or they could potentially resign them. But I guess they could just eat the second apron and that's it. Maybe Ishbia doesn't care. He's like, I'm mad Ishbia. We're fine. I think the Aiton play is that they have to figure out a way to turn Aiton into three pieces. And it, that this, is three this, cheaper pieces. Right. Like, is there a Miles Turner play? If Aiton signed the offer sheet with the Pacers, could they bring in Miles Turner, who, along with Plumley, were two of the best intensity defenders against Jokic? I'm not saying the numbers are awesome, but like, I, I still talk about Turner against Jokic uh, in a regular season game because I was like, man, this guy's actually like finding a way to work. Uh, and does it, you get one of the guards that the Pacers don't see as part of their future where you're kind of building out something knowing that, okay, clearly the Suns can survive without Aiton. Now, whoever the new coach is, not being Monty Williams, you're already in a better spot than you were the year before. Kevin Young. uh, Kevin Young. Well, just because the Aiton-Williams thing was clearly like past the point of being fixed. It, It really appears that that wasn't going into the season. It wasn't going to be fixed coming off of the Dallas loss. So they went into it where that relationship just wasn't right the whole time. So maybe the argument is, and you do this if you're Kevin Young in the interview, you tell the owner all the players are awesome and they're all fixable and you have the plan. Like that's you don't you don't well, go Booker Booker, he's Booker's guy. Booker loves him. Monty Williams didn't get along with Aiton and Jay Crowder. Those were two of his best five players. So he's batting sixty percent with <laughs> the most important guys in the team to get along with. I uh did you, by the way, did you like, did you hear some of the stuff coming out of the combine? There was slight momentum for a third round of the draft. And all I could think of was how mad mm-hmm. Hinky would be that he's not a GM. So he couldn't stockpile 13 third rounders. Well, he'll over come back. That, if anything will drive him to come back, I feel like it would be a third round. I think Daryl would love the third round as well. Daryl would be super excited about it. Wait, last thing. <laughs> Charlotte on this, and Philadelphia control the third round. <laughs> um, Chris Paul. Thirty point eight million next year, but he is uh it's half guaranteed can be bought out for half. Yeah. And if you can't find a market for eight, and that would be plan B if I'm the Suns. I gotta figure out how to move this. You might Chris be able Paul to do contract. Both. Yeah, maybe, maybe you can. And maybe it's maybe it's a team like Dallas. I still feel like Chris Paul has value next year for somebody who has cap space and and uh we've seen what happens when he goes to new teams. But I I just feel like Phoenix is going to have Durant, Booker, and I have no idea who else is going to be in the team. You tell me anything. I have one last thing for you that I didn't tell you about before we go. I was thinking about Charlotte at two and Portland at three and how Scoot should be the second pick because he's going to be better than Miller. And I feel comfortable. I've started my draft research. I'm not as deep into it as you are. Um, I'm just, I'm all in on Scoot. I'm planting my flag now. I think he's going to be the second best guy in the draft. I'm planning it now. I just believe. I'm a, I'm in. He checks all my boxes. I'm fucking in on Scoot. And I don't care that we're a guard-loaded league. I just think I'm not taking a guard 
in the top three, unless I'm positive, is all NBA potential and could be like one of the best two guys on a title team. I think he can. And I think Charlotte, you talked about this on your pod. If Charlotte's looking at it as you did a whole lottery breakdown, if it's like, well, the fit's better with Miller. Like you can't think that way if you're Charlotte. I don't think LaMelo's a superstar. I'm not positive he's a winning player. I'm not making my number two pick decisions based on we have LaMelo Ball. And I think Scoot's going to be better than LaMelo Ball. But if you're Charlotte, you have to make Portland think you're going to take Miller. Because the one thing Portland, even though I think we both agree, don't, especially with high picks where you have a chance to get an all-NBA guy, don't think about fit when you suck. Just take the best guy. My number if one you're Portland, right? If you're Portland, you have Dame, who's one of the best 15 players in the league. And if you're going to keep Dame, taking Scoot actually makes no sense. Like, literally no sense, because you can't have Dame and Simons and, and Scoot. It's stupid. So if you're keeping Dame, you can't take Scoot, which means that number three pick is going to be available unless Portland and Charlotte pick spots. But if Charlotte, and I have no idea if they have an IQ over 70 as an organization, but if they're smart, they're going to make it seem like they're taking Miller starting now. You get Portland to panic. And then if I'm another team watching this from afar, I'm like, holy shit, we might be able to get Scoot. Like Portland's not going to take him. What's our package? So I think in a weird way, even though Wembenyama is coming to the league and this is the most important guy we've had come in the league in 20 years, the Scoot Charlotte Portland thing, I think is going to be really dramatic. And, and I think it's going to lead to a lot of dialogue and some fun fake trades. I'm here for it, Rosillo. By the way, Joe Cronin, who's with the Trailblazers, I don't know him at all, but people do speak pretty highly of him. And I would think the attachment, especially with bringing in some new people, it's maybe not the same uh, as it's been in the past, but it really has always been up to Dame. I mean, we're on like year three or four of this shit with Lillard where it's all of us and the consistent thing seems to be that he's he's not as upset about the situation as maybe we, we're just so used to anybody that's this good and you're right, his profile, what he's capable of, the neighborhood he's lived in as a player, like eventually that guy just asks out. And what I had always been told forever was that he likes being the main attraction. He was not in a hurry to share that with somebody else, even though Portland's To be not, part he, of a big three. Right, yeah. right. And even though Portland, I would say, is in the bottom five now, as far as cities that NBA guys are going like, hey, where do I want to go? Um, Portland's pretty low, and he seems to be pretty cool with the whole thing. So I think there is, you know, when you said like, you know, if, if the front office or whatever, if they're, if they're, is a group out there, the way people are talking about that front office, I'd imagine that they're not, you know, going to just go, yeah, cool. Like, let's, let's just tip our hands here on everything. Um, but Charlotte's the one that I think that's that, that's the one I was talking about with, I'm not convinced they're going to execute this correctly because they've shown no ability to do so really for 20 years. Yeah. Cause the but, NJ part of it, like, I, I have no idea what happens there other than the end result hasn't been all that good. But the other part of the Brandon Miller thing coming off the Miles Bridges stuff where there's still a basketball decision to be made on that. Um, I brought this up on my pod. I have no idea if it plays into it at all. Like if Brandon Miller and Scooter are a tie, does Scoot lose the tie because it's a positional thing or does Brandon Miller lose the tie because of the off the court stuff, which I feel like some teams throughout the process are like, not great, but we're okay. Well, we're have, you, work. have you read and heard some of the team reactions? Like he, he's been, I wouldn't say forthcoming about what happened, 
And I also, there's been some stuff about how he lost some weight because he was sick and doesn't seem like he's been playing basketball that much. So when we get to the workout part of this, he might actually just bomb. And I think Scoot's going to kill the workouts and people are going to spend time with Scoot and they're going to be like, Jesus Christ. So I think Charlotte will end up taking Scoot, but they should make Portland think they're not going to take Scoot. And we never seen teams do this ever because Portland's going to panic if, uh, I'm sorry, Char- Charlotte, they have to make it seem like they're going to take Miller because Portland's going to panic if they think Scoot's going to be there at three because then it's like, well, okay, now do we trade Dame? What, like, so yeah, they're going right. to have to do something. Right, and is Scoot good enough? And do you do that to, this is the stuff that I, I think is worth bringing up. I'm not sure how much I would worry about it, but like, imagine if you're trading Dame because Scoot falls to you. And then there's all of that on this kid who entered the G League at 17 years old. I'd argue that based on the people that know Scoot and they all fucking love him, that he'd be like, all right, whatever. And we saw that against the Wembyama showdowns. He granted he got hurt in the second one. It's yeah, my you and favorite. I are all in on Scoot. Yeah. The first game against Wembyama where he was like, I know what everybody's here for, but I'm going to make sure they recognize who I am and what I can do. And even the talk about him having a down year this year in the G League, which he did. Yeah. There's just a lot. Well, I think people felt like he was coasting a little bit more, but uh, there's the cop that I made was the Halliburton stuff. When you watch Halliburton in college, you could see that he saw things the other nine players wouldn't even think about. Like yeah. they were just like, what? Like they must have watched film his teammates and been like, what was that? Like, how did you even see that? I'm not saying like Scoots, that or Jason Kidd, but for somebody that's so good off the ball, knowing, oh, hey, they're going to blitz me. I'm just going to dribble right past you. Oh, the guy's coming up and he's not dropping. I'm going to pull up mid-range. Yes, it looks a little Chris Paul-ish. not going to lie. There's another play where he just tries to absolutely humiliate the entire league. By the way, Kenneth Fareed out there, Mexico City G League. Shout out. Oh. Pooh Jetter, 39 years old in the G Love League. That still guy. making it happen. Oh, Pooh's in our G League, Doc. Oh, there you go. 39. Yeah, he's, still making he's, it happen. The, here's the thing with Scoot. There's a durability piece to him. Like he's just got such an unbelievable athleticism and such a body. Like I, you know, there's certain guys like Westbrook was like this. Where you're like, wow, that guy. That's like an 82 games a year kind of dude. I just, I just Scoot to me almost looks like Donovan Mitchell if Donovan Mitchell was just built like Saquon Barkley or something. You know, I I think he's he should be the second pick. And if I'm Charlotte. You know, maybe the, you don't even need to do the chicanery because the Miller workout stuff is going to be kind of shaky enough that people are going to go, eh, and you can't even pretend. But if I'm them, I'm building around Scoot. And if LaMelo can fit with him, great. If not, I'll figure it out. But he's he's got a higher ceiling than LaMelo for me. I'm. Do you think, are we positive LaMelo is a winning player? Oh, As no. much I fun mean, as he is to watch? Like, do do you actually see him in a game like the one we watched last night? I don't know. I think he's a lot of fun. He's their star, despite he's having, super fun, right? He's he he's been hurt, you know. But when I watch it all, it's it's fun. The vision is incredible. But I there's there has to be some like real basketball growth for him. Yeah, you know, I think the numbers are great. I think the plays are awesome. I think he could actually play with another dude like Scoot. Like Scoot could Me initiate Lamelo. I think is a fun teammate. Apparently they're both friends, but then I was told like LaMelo, everybody likes LaMelo. LaMelo likes everybody. Like he gets along with everybody. But yeah, it's some of that winning play shit that I always talk about. 
uh, I would argue it's it's lacking with him, which happens with a lot of the young guys. Wouldn't call but him it, a good defender. No, I just think the <laughs> the being lost stuff is yeah. what what frustrates me more. Like it's one thing to get upright and get beat off the dribble by another NBA ball handler. Like it's going to happen to you all the time. The simple stuff of like, did you make it easy for them because you were just freelancing? You were completely out of position, and yeah. it was. I think to the point where it was so bad in the beginning of his career, like nobody was really ever talking about it. And it's just going to make it sound like you and I, because we didn't love him coming out of the draft. But now he's like the best version of the guy I saw in Australia that still has some of those bad habits that at this point, it hasn't mattered because they're just not even really on the radar enough. You know, if, if yeah. Lamelo were with a different team with another guy that was already established and putting up these numbers, we talk about him in a different way because he'd be held to a different standard by the basketball public. And right now it's just still been new enough and they stink and he puts up huge numbers and you know, right now that huge. I, I think you and I are aligned on this and then it could get spun as like, Oh, you hate that guy. You're a hater. Cause I feel the same way about, I think Jalen green has been like this on Houston. It's easy to put up stats on bad teams. King of Houston, the King of Houston. Um, And it's just like, just show me you can be part of a winning team. We haven't seen that yet with Lamelo. There were some moments though, like they had a couple short stretches with him and Rogier, and when Hayward was playing, when you could kind of see. Yeah, the team has something been good. They lose Bridges. Hayward's yeah, no, hurt all no the bridges. time. They, you know, they went one year I think without a center, uh, and yeah. then Lamelo has been hurt. So you know, if he stays, hell, I'm not knocking him because he's been hurt, but him being hurt also makes the team worse. Clearly, so. It's not, I don't think you and I, I don't think it should sound like you and I are trashing him. I think what we're simply talking about here is that I think there's a part of the NBA public that is shocked to think anything could be negative about LaMelo. And the only reason we're talking about it is that it's a real decision about Scoot. It's a real yeah. decision there because LaMelo's far from perfect at this point. And he's a couple of years further along on his rookie contract stuff. And, you know, is he somebody you'd want to pay $50 million a year to in two years? When no. I don't know if he can even carry a first round team. All right. Well, we'll see what's going to happen tomorrow night. Uh, Rusillo, next time we see each other will be after game two of the NBA finals. That lo- that game will be played in either Boston, Massachusetts or Denver, Colorado. We will see. Enjoy game seven. Thank you. All right, that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Kyle Creighton. Thanks to Steve Cerruti as well. Don't forget, Prestige TV. You can hear me and Fantasy. No Joanna Robinson because she's on vacation. We're going to miss her, but she's going to have a, a deep dive reaction a couple of days later. So me and Fantasy and the Prestige TV pod, as soon as we can get it up after the succession finale, I will see you on this feed on Monday night with my dad, win or lose, game seven. Go Celtics.